Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm pretty sure composer Marcos Balter was the first person from Brazil I ever met. But I'm positive Marcos was the first person to introduce me to the national drink of Brazil, the Caipirinha. It was sometime early in the first week of Tanglewood Music Festival, and Marcos, having just met a bar full of musicians newish to legal drinking, had us all in the palm of his hand. His quick wit, kindness, and general sense of fun won us over in record time, and many of us came out of that experience wanting to hear just what kind of music this guy could possibly write. Marcos Balter is one of those people who just kind of doesn't sleep. Marcos is always moving, always thinking, always planning, always chatting. In my mind's eye, his edges are blurry, like a still from a videotaped football game. His restless demeanor extends to every aspect of his life. As a composer, he writes an almost unthinkable amount of music. And not all of it works. He gives himself the right to fail. I'm always writing something. There's not a month that I don't have a double bar in my life. And I like it. You know, I think that that keeps my mind going. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, those 10 or 12 pieces are going to be good. Maybe one or two of those will be good. Um, But that, to me, is my exercise. It's an art form, but it's a craft as well. And I allow myself a lot of room for failure. And I think that failure is a great thing. And failure sometimes teaches you much, much more than something that just works, you know, from the beginning. Given the choice, Marcos will always take a risk. And sometimes it fails, but sometimes it really pays off. The composer. I'm Nadia Sirota. Today on our show, we mine the brain of composer Marcos Balter. Marcos is one of the most prolific composers I've ever met. He writes at least 10 to 12 pieces a year. And trust me, that's a lot of music. It's safe to say that most composers don't do half of that. His music and his affect both reflect this frenetic way of life. Or actually, it's probably the other way around. The second you meet him, you're struck by his energy and his focus, the two elements he knits together to create these stunning, unexpected pieces of music. Marcos is also gregarious, and I think this is musically relevant, too. In the same way he can introduce two people to each other who end up fast friends, he coaxes unexpected timbres from musical instruments that perfectly mesh with each other. In this piece, Bladed Stance for Sextet, I have a really hard time figuring out which notes are played by the trumpet and which are played by the cello. Think about that. That's nuts. So how did he learn to think this way? It all started when he was a four-year-old kid in Rio de Janeiro. I was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro. I'm very much a city guy. It's a pretty metropolitan place, very mixed in many, many ways. 
and I started studying music at age four, and it was sort of this odd thing. There wasn't a musician in my family. Um, what did your parents do, or what was their...? Well, my parents are both physicians. My mom is a pediatrician. My dad is a gynecologist. My dad actually works for the Navy, so he had this sort of a Navy-slash-physician kind of life that was much more about policy and health policy, etc., And the rest of my family was, you know, a bunch of people from diverse fields. There were some very musical people in my family. My mom studied voice when she was younger. My dad wanted to be a musician when he was younger. He played the electric bass in some bands. And um, my grandmother, my dad being a single child, you know, just told him that, you know, music was not a very safe profession. So maybe you should view towards something a little a little more reliable. A lot of my early memories at home are my parents either just at home by themselves or at you know social gatherings. My dad would get his acoustic guitar and my mom would sing. And my dad plays beautifully. And uh, my mom sings really nice too. So music was a constant at home. We would listen to a lot of music. Marcos heard a lot of music at home, but his first real engagement with music was at his aunt's house. My aunt was a writer. And she kept the family piano, the piano that my grandparents had at home. She would have it in her office, in her writing office, and it was always full of books. And when I was a kid, I would always go straight to that room, take all the books out, open the piano, and then start, quote-unquote, playing. And I would spend hours there. The other kids would be playing elsewhere, and I would be at the piano always, to the point that my, my aunt finally told my parents, you need to take this piano to your house And uh, a year later, I started studying piano. Marcos could spend hours making up melodies on the piano, but the idea that this could be a profession, a vocation, came from a television show. Watching a concert on TV, and I don't remember exactly what they were playing. All I remember is that there were six pianos, and it was outdoors, kind of crazy, extravaganza thing. And they interviewed the composer of whatever was being played. Do you think it was Steve Reich? Because he's got a piece called Six Pianos. I know. That's what I keep thinking, that maybe Steve Reich was the cause. But I'm not quite sure, and there is not an archive of it. I I want it to be Steve Reich. That would be such a cool story. (laughs) But I do remember hearing the person talking about the process of making music and the, the, the involvement with the performers. And I remember finding that fascinating. And not really fully understanding still what was being a composer, I decided to become one. So that's when you were how old? Four. Four. Okay. How old? Four. Four. Okay. How old? I find it very interesting that, like, you're figuring out probably how to read and write at the same time as you're figuring out how to sort of make noises on the piano and what those mean, how to sort of notate them. It's, it's funny because I don't necessarily think that music is a language. Um, but at the same time, when I think of how I came into music, it was almost as I was trying to figure out 
how to decode or encode language uh, the same way that I was doing with, you know, written in red Portuguese. So your first exposure to sort of formalized music lessons was piano lessons? Yeah, uh, my parents at first thought that, you know, the piano thing was obviously a fad. You know, there was not a single professional musician in the family. So they put me in these lessons with this lovely lady that I don't remember the name. And uh, the whole thing was based on hearing and repeating. And I absolutely hated it. I wanted to know how to write the notes on the paper. I, I That was my, my main thing, how to get those sounds that I was playing with, that I was imagining, how to encode them in a way that others could do. So I begged my parents to start studying music theory. So they took me to the Villa Lobos Conservatory. And by that point, actually, my grandfather, who was really the person who encouraged my music education throughout my life, even after my parents started freaking out and realizing that that was a career choice rather than a, ha- a habit, you know, <laughs> a hobby. Um, but um, he took me to the Villa Lobos Conservatory, and they did this sort of a little interview slash test thing, and they wanted to place me in the kids' the kids, the, the kids class. Which, At this point, you were how old were you? I was five. So, just so you know what you're listening to, this is an actual recording Marcos provided us with of one of his first general music classes. And in his own words, the baby singing super loud and out of tune was him. I hated it. I detested it. I thought it was condescending. It's really funny because people talk about being a child as this magical thing. I detested it. I hated it. I wanted to be an adult so bad. Like by the time that I, you know, as far as I can remember, I wanted to be an adult. I wanted to do my own thing. So I begged my grandfather to talk to them again and let me start studying, you know, music theory. And they decided to do something that, as far as I know, they haven't done again. I don't know if they they were traumatized by the experience or not, but they put me in a class, a music theory class that was for teenagers. And my grandfather had to be outside at all times. And I had to sit right next to the teacher to be allowed in the class. I have really funny memories of that time. I remember being, you know, by now like six or six and a half and going to the restroom in the Villalobos Conservatory and smelling this funny smell, which later on I found out that it was, you know, some some herbal fun stuff. (laughs) Um, And I remember everybody being old, you know, like 14, 15. And I was that sort of, you know, little obnoxious kid, very precocious. Marcos accelerated through that program rather quickly, and as he got older and older, he began to focus more on the piano. After the Villa Lobos Conservatory, I moved to the Conservatório Brasileiro de Música, the Brazilian Conservatory of Music. So I went to study with this really famous Brazilian pianist called Linda Bustani. And Linda very quickly realized that if I were to be a pianist, I was going to be a pianist slash composer anyways. That side of me wasn't going to go anywhere. So she encouraged me to keep studying composition and music theory stuff, but outside of that system, outside of the conservatory system. 
so I could actually create my own curriculum and not depend on, you know, that sort of formalized regression. And uh, when I was 15, I very boldly sent a letter to Almeida Prado, who was then Brazil's most prominent composer, having studied with Messiaen and Nadia Boulanger, and I, and I really liked his music. And I said, hey, guess what? I'm a composer, and I like your music, and you should teach me. And I sent him some of my horrible juvenile stuff. We're hearing right now is Marcos's Prelude Number no. Four, a piece he wrote when he was 14, and this is actually one of the recordings he sent to Prado when he was trying to woo him into becoming his teacher. So yeah, that was Marcos at 14. It's funny to hear it because I can see things that are, that kind of have remained within my personality, within myself and my music sensibilities. But I can also see this, uh, this, this desperate need to be taken seriously. So Almeida Prado, he gave my parents a call. And uh, he said, I, I would love to teach him. He was in Sao Paulo. We were in Rio. And he said, you can send him to Sao Paulo over weekends. I can, you know, kind of take care of him and teach him. And he did so for a short period. It was just two years that we did that. And I would go to his house like on a Friday, stay until Sunday. And uh, he never charged a penny. He defined the whole thing as a very Robin Hood-like mission, which I thought was funny. He would say, I, I teach on talented people so I can teach, you know, people that I like. And uh, he was the one really who started to introduce me to stuff that I didn't know. Anything post-1890, 1900 was still a big mystery. And they started talking about Ligeti and Boulez and Stockhausen. I was like, what? So this music, the music Prado played Marcos, this is some pretty heady stuff. The piece we're listening to right now, Gesang der Junglinge, is widely referred to as one of the first masterpieces of electronic music. This is from 1955, and as you can hear, it's pretty out there. Marcos started listening to this stuff, and immediately he wanted to hear more. Right after I started studying with Almeida Prado, I remember being in Rio and going to German classes downtown. And near my German course was an old record store. And there was an old gentleman that worked there um, that saw my interest in contemporary music. Um, and I told him that I wanted to be a composer. So he decided that he was going to pick 10 records for me that I should have. It was a Ligeti record. I think that there was Atmospheres and Lux Eternum, and there was Reich, Schnitke. Uh, it was Berio Symphonia, which blew my mind. No. 
Okay, so let's zoom out for a second. I'm going to leave 15-year-old Marcos back in Rio and talk about the impact this piece had on grown-up Marcos. This is the third movement of Berio's Sinfonia. I love this piece. We could do a whole show on just this piece. It's from 1969, and if it sounds nuts, that's because Berio took snippets of literally dozens of pieces, music by Ravel, Schoenberg, Boulez, Debussy, Brahms, Berg, and a ton of others, and mapped them all into the third movement of Mahler II. Berio was really one of my earlier late 20th century heroes. What really kind of blew me away is that I knew a lot of the works which Berio quotes in the third movement. And to hear them together with the voices and to hear history, if you will, being recontextualized and being worked through this very different filter. This represents at least a thousand words I was not counting on. In which pieces that were not supposed to be heard together create this this new context by mixing context was really attracted to me. It was really beautiful to see how Weber went with Ravel, went with Mahler, and how everything felt so organic. Everything heals, opens, ends, flows. Yes, I feel the moment has come for me to look back. I must not forget this. I've not forgotten it. But I must have said this before, since I say it now. You know, I I became even more curious about what was behind it and how it was done and how could I do it. The Italian composer Luciano Berio, for me, is a kind of Marcos Balter spirit animal. To be fair, most of his music doesn't really sound like this. He only really decoupaged a symphony orchestra that one time. But he loves taking something familiar and reshaping it. Marcos's music can do this thing too, and actually, it's almost chameleon-like in the way it can be contextualized. Take a piece like this, his Memoria for Solo Cello. It can fit beautifully onto a concert of modernist works or a concert of minimal works. And it's not because the piece is either thing, really, but that Marcos takes cues from styles we recognize and, like Berio, subverts them, changes the gravity, thickens the atmosphere. Thank you.
I think that what attracted me to those composers was the eclecticism. These different things sort of clashing together, the, the, the old and the new and the consonant and the dissonant and the freedom that that music allowed. You know, the, the, the idea that there was not something that was historically concealed yet and that I could play with it, mm-hmm. that was very liberating. So um, as opposed to this, you'd been taking, you know, very formal music theory. This is, this is you know, you're, all of a sudden it seems like music can go in a lot of different directions. Yes, I think that the big click, the big mental click was understanding that music theory comes from composition rather than the opposite. That, you know, that composition is not subservient to a set of rules, that those rules are just conventions that have been historically formed by the frequency in which they happened in actual repertoire, that I should be aware of the past, that I should know how those things were done, that I should understand the anatomy, if you will, of music. But it was up to me to make that body morph into whatever I wanted. As always, if you want to hear more of this piece, Memoria, or anything else from today's program, go to q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. When we come back, Marcos moves abroad, embraces ignorance, and finds the library. If you love what you're hearing, you may also enjoy Q2 Music's 24-7 stream of the best colorful, weird, and breathtaking new music. Visit our homepage at q2music.org and hit play. Nadia Sirota. Today on Meet the Composer, we're taking a deep dive into the brain of Marcos Balter. Marcos grew up as a precocious piano and composition student in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and he was kind of over childhood from the beginning, a restless kid who was always looking forward to the next project and to the next adventure. He always knew that if he wanted to continue music education seriously, he'd have to leave the country. And at age 18, he won a piano competition that provided him a full scholarship to Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. This seems like a good school. I don't know much about Texas besides what I see in Dallas, you know, the the TV show, which was kind of popular back then. Um, Sounded exotic enough. I was like, why not? So So Marcos was majoring in both piano and composition, and he ended up in the composition studio of of Gerald Gable, who had studied at UCSD with Bernard Rands. So Gable was sort of the bad boy, if you will, of the department that knew all the crazy music that I still didn't know at that point. We, we, We sort of clicked. He was a great teacher. He taught me a lot of things, but the one thing that he taught me the most that I'm so glad he did was how to become a library rat. 
and how to start, you know, acquiring scores that the library didn't have and how I could go about getting familiar with things that were not necessarily available to me wherever I went that I could kind of push and get all those crazy fun scores to look at. Let me interject here. Music libraries are kind of magical places. Some of these scores, they are rare, super expensive, and often huge. I recently filed away my George Crumb Black Angels score with my chest x-rays. They're exactly the same size. In the 20th century, notation took a turn for the weird and eccentric, and the ways that composers chose to communicate their ideas became more and more personal, bizarre, and ingenious. I mean, it's it's coming across possibilities that you didn't consider yourself. Uh, it's coming across new ideas that you might love or hate, but they're new and they 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 point towards different things and they they open different doors that you know you didn't think of. I, I love coming across scores that I don't understand at first. I love coming across, not only scores, I mean, I, I love coming across things that I don't understand because that gives me a, a, an opportunity to stop and figure out, you know, this new thing and maybe incorporate some of it into my life. So did you pursue graduate study after your undergrad? Yes. I did my master's at TCU as well. I just stayed. Um, I, I applied for some other schools, and I was rejected. Um, I know, I know. Um, I used to be very bitter about it, <laughs> you know, and I used to sort of open my my guest lectures with, well, you know, this school re- rejected me, and, and here I am, I'm going to show you now, which is silly, of course. I mean, looking back, I fully understand why I was rejected. The music was not good. <laughs> <laughs> but Marcos eventually did get into grad school, where... It became clear to me that all those little I'm stupid, I'm ignorant clicks that I'd had before were a preparation to this big, oh my God, I know nothing feeling that I got at Northwestern. I was coming from TCU, which is a good school, but it's you know not a top 10 uh, music school. And my classmates were coming from Juilliard and Eastman and Rice and, you know, Indiana and those places that had all this reputation and all these resources. And uh, I remember going to classes and people talking very nonchalantly about things that I was not aware of and me hating the feeling and just running to the library. Do you remember what any of those things were? Um, the big thing was spectral music. People were talking about Murai and Grise quite a lot, and that was not music that I had come in contact with.
How would you characterize that music? Spectral music, I mean, it's a, it, it's a very artificial term in many ways, but if I were to summarize spectral music, it's music that in which timbre is a parameter as active as the other traditional parameters, such as rhythm or harmony and melody, and to the point that a lot of those other parameters derive from timbral information. That was a very good definition of spectralism. Thank you so much. <laughs> so Marcos had gone to Northwestern ostensibly to study with their star composition faculty member, Augusta Reed Thomas. But her studio was full his first year. So he found himself in the studio of J. Allen Yim. For my first quarters at Northwestern, and J. has remained as my, my, my greatest, my my most influencing teacher, and uh, he really sort of uh, cracked my head open in many ways, and, and it's thanks to him that I started pursuing the path that led me to where I am and what I do nowadays. He's a very special character. I, I love that man. I mean, he is he's an amazing teacher, but he's also this crazy, intimidating information center that walks and teaches. I have a friend who says that he wishes that Jay would come in cassette format mm. because there are just so many pieces of information on whatever he says, and his knowledge of repertoire and his memory are scary. He can talk about you know, the most unknown composer that you can think of for about five hours and have all these little anecdotes about the composer. And his knowledge of um, contemporary art, truly contemporary art, was really scary as well. And Jay's partner, Marlena Novak, is a visual artist. So Jay was someone who was very aware, too, of other media. Do you find yourself to be influenced by other media as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I do... I do find myself comparing what I do to what painters, sculptors, and dancers do. Can we talk a little bit about the piece Descent from Parnassus? Or I seem to remember there's some kind of visual art component yes. to this. It was actually a commission from the Art Institute of Chicago. They had just opened their modern wing, so they had a lot of new art from, you know, 20th century, late 20th century artists. So they, they approached me and Claire Chase and they said, we want you to select one of the pieces and do something about that piece. So I had gone to the museum before Claire, and I saw this piece, and I fell in love with it. And I was like, I want to do this. But Claire suggested that we would go to the museum together and pick the piece together. So I told her, I was like, I, I have a candidate, but I'm not going to tell you which, you know, which work it is. And uh, she was like, cool. So we started walking in, and, you know, I was quiet. I was trying to not lead her towards the piece that I wanted. And the moment that she saw the Twombly, she stopped in front of it, and she was like, this. And I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> I always liked Twombly for a variety of reasons, but chiefly because of the whole symbolism within Twombly and the way that he used symbolism, that he would use 
iconic clues in a way that would make you look at them and assume things? Or maybe create a system out of things that didn't quite exist? I mean, if you look at the painting, you see these numbers, the way that they are placed in specific roles, they seem to have some sort of significance. They, they seem to have a meaning to them. You see this sort of a perfect triangle that is golden, that seems to suggest some sort of golden meaning kind of thing. Quasi-sexual information there, phallic figures and kisses and things shooting up. And there's a lot of things there that almost seem to be giving you these clues about what this can be about. And of course, the title itself of the work already gives you some, some context. But again, the beauty of it is that some of this information is conflicting, and some of this information leads to absolutely nowhere. And it's the, the process of looking at those things and trying to figure out what they mean, what I think that Pombley wants from the listener. It's not fully understanding, but it's, it's the journey towards understanding it. Here's flutist Claire Chase. He's constantly expanding the languages of, of the instruments that he uses. And he's constantly expanding my vocabulary as a flutist. We've made a lot of explorations together into the use of text with the flute, which is not a new thing at all. But the way that he sets his text, for example, in his piece Descent from Parnassus that he wrote for me, he took a Dante text and set it quite literally through the flute. And while this has been done by many other composers, in the 20th century, Marcos really is the first one that I know of to go this far in pushing the limits of the solo flutist to be both a singer and performance artist and a flutist. It's one of my favorite things to play and I think one of the most beautiful things that he's written. hearing right now is actually a live recording of flutist Claire Chase performing Descent from Parnassus at the Art Institute of Chicago. And actually, the audio is taken from a beautiful video of Claire performing in front of the side Twombly painting that inspired Marcos to write the piece. If you want to check out the painting and the video, we've linked to it on our website, q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Marcos is attracted to things presented incomprehensibly, especially those that seem possible to puzzle out. It's what attracted him to the Twombly, and also the basis of a piece he's currently working on called Codex, which is based on... On the, the Codex Serafinianus by Luigi Serafini, which is this 
crazy, nonsensical, whimsical book that is written in this quote-unquote invented language. I mean, it has a lot of beautiful illustration, but what is really, really cool about this book is that you look at it, you can't quite decipher it, although there are some people who are sort of cracking the code very gradually, and there seems to be a code behind it. But you know from get-go that things are systematic and they make sense, and that attracts me a lot. It's almost like opening a book in a language that you don't speak, that you know that there are rules taking place there. You can feel that things are being organized in a specific way, but you, you, you don't know what they might be. To me, that resonates so much with you, you know, being five and wanting to figure out how to notate music and knowing that there is such a thing as notation and just not quite understanding what that is. Very much so. And sort of inventing your own, as you said, tablature, like different ways of, of kind of depicting this thing. Yes. So to me, it seems that you, you are constantly attracted to uh, systems of organization that you don't quite get. Yes, I I like, well, I mean, I, I've used the word ignorance so much now, and I think that, that that is something that attracts me a lot. It's my own ignorance towards things, coupled with my, my, my previous knowledge. So it's, it's, it's getting closer to, to ideas that I may not have a command of, but understanding that I might have the rudimentary tools to maybe crack that code, to get into, you know, that information somehow in the challenge of sort of uh, crossing that bridge between the unknowing, not understanding to full understanding and putting that in my music, you know, language. Ugh. I hate, I, but I hate seeing language with music. It's not a language. It's not axiomatic. What is it? Music? Yeah. Um... Wow, that's that's a big <laughs> question. I mean, it's a way in which you... I don't know. But it's not a language. It's not a language. It doesn't point towards specific things. You know, music is... As I said, music is not axiomatic. Yeah. You know, you don't hear a sound and you say... Oh, this equals that. It's not it's a cat. It's all right. about context a lot. Mm. You know, a lot of words are about context. And, of course, you can change the context of words by what you say with them. But if I say hammer, the probabilities of what I mean, you know, are somehow well-defined. However, if you're trying to describe an emotion with the language that we have, it tends to be a little bit vague. Some people are wonderful at it, mm -hmm. at describing emotion via that. Whereas, I find that if I'm performing a piece, there's a pretty good chance that a bunch of people in the audience are feeling the same thing at one moment or something similar. Yes, there is definitely the sort of a more cathartic, you know, 
collective feeling that goes with experiencing music. And I, and I think that a lot of it also has to do with extra musical elements, you know, like maybe the listeners that you're talking about were looking at your face and studying your facial expressions and understanding what you were trying to convey or looking at your body movements. And But I don't fully believe that without those either historical slash cultural slash social pre-understood knowledge that you can hear to something and be like, this is sad, or this is happy, or this is about this and that. You know, I mean, we walk into a piece of music with a bunch of previous knowledge, regardless of how much we know about music, and that guides us towards more specific experiences. And what I try to do a lot of times is to create contexts that you don't have those things. I, you know, take the floor off of your feet. So you have to feel things that you may not know, and you have to think about these feelings and then come up with what you think they might mean. So you think music is just, it's beyond an expressible human experience somehow? No, I just don't think that music is a mirror of understood expressions. Neither should it just be that. You know, it's not that music that does that is bad or good or I, I, I don't, I don't want to give a qualifier in that sense, but... I don't think that music mirrors only the things that we know how to feel and how to digest. I think that music can point towards things that words feel and explaining. This piece, Oot, and everything else from today's show can be found on our website, q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. When we come back, Marcos finds his people in Chicago and learns that failure is an option. Stay tuned. Please listen to Q2 Music responsibly. Do not listen for more than 16 hours without a break. Excessive listening may increase the severity of side effects. Side effects from listening to Q2 Music may include excitement, trembling, euphoria, advanced neoconservative postmodernism, elevated pulse, existential joy, hypertrophic dancephilia, and in rare cases, polyrhythmic atonality. 
If any of these systems persist for more than four hours after you have stopped listening to Q2 music, consult a musicologist immediately. I'm Nadia Sirota. Today on Meet the Composer, Marcos Balter. Throughout his life, Marcos has thrust himself into new situations where he's realized how much there is to learn. It's one of my favorite things about him, his eagerness to soak up as much information as possible. As his world expanded from Rio to Sao Paulo to Dallas to Chicago, Marcos was always learning, always meeting people, and always collaborating. It was definitely about being in Chicago because there was something very magical happening in Chicago at that time. There were lots of really interesting people that were sort of converging to Chicago, unknowing of each other, you know, but just sort of arriving in the city at the same time. So who are, who are some of these people that showed up at the same time? Some young musicians that didn't quite know what they were doing and the whole idea of going to a conservatory and then applying for, you know, orchestral auditions and getting that job was not really that fulfilling. People that started to become more excited about music written by peers and presenting that music not necessarily only in concert halls, but going after a new audience. It was there to be taken. It was this sort of, I don't know, it was, it, it was this, this movement that was ready. Marcos had a leading role in this sort of youth-led renaissance in the Chicago new music scene. This emerging idea that you can create your own community of collaborators is something that was becoming pervasive in a handful of places in the U.S. in the 2000s and 2010s, and it yielded a pretty remarkable amount of quality stuff. Marco started writing for this community, for his friends. When you know someone, you know how they think and how they act. So you have basically mainly two choices there to sort of corroborate who they are and explore their uniquenesses, which I find fascinating. But you can also mess with them. You know, you can also sort of deny them from wearing those armors that are very comfortable on them and seeing what kind of noise you get out of it. So how did that idea translate in in practical terms? How did it translate in in like the codex? Well, again, I, I tend to write for people that I know. And I really feel that the more I know the performers, the more... I can do and the more secure I feel about imagining those sounds in my head and you know extrapolating the the conventional you know sonic universe of those instruments so again when I when I were to to pick uh, the instrumentation and I didn't quite pick it was an understanding that I would be working with my most frequent collaborators. So it wasn't viola, it was you, you know, and it was Claire, not flute, and Rebecca on the bassoon, and Ryan on saxophone, who have been four of my most active collaborators. So it felt very natural. Some of the sonorities that you pull out of the instruments are are shocking to me. There's a movement where it is just soprano saxophone, flute, and bassoon quite fast. And I just never thought that those instruments would blend so beautifully as they do. So how do you how do you come how do you conceive of timbre? How do you know that that's going to work ahead of time? I hear it. It's not that everything that I write I know exactly how it sounds, but I have a very good idea of how that may sound. And um a lot of my composing time is spent 
not writing things down, but really sort of closing my eyes, being in a quiet place and trying to hear it. And once I get that sound in my head, then the mission is how to transcribe it. But yeah, I mean, I, I have to hear it. I always have to hear it. If I, if I can't quite have an idea, at least a very close idea of what I'm going for sonically, that's when I, when I start feeling that I might be faking it that I might be writing music that is quote-unquote smart, that is music to sort of glorify a way of thinking or something that will satisfy the more sort of egotistical needs of a composer. So I, I'm very faithful, very loyal to my internal ear. I think that's so interesting. Because our system of notation is so complex, I think some people get completely obsessed with it and then use it as a tool to sort of fat, like see what you can do with notation and what that yields, as opposed to having a, an idea and then using notation to sort of, you know, form it into something. Which I find so odd, because to me, the latter is definitely how I think. You know, I, I don't think of something that is fully notated first. What comes first to me is always sound. It's always that sonic message. And then the, the biggest fun after that is figuring out how can I visually represent that in a way that is not only direct, but in a way that psychologically speaking puts the performer in a very specific mode. How can I create this, this graphic message in which you will not only understand how the sound is produced, but how you should be feeling as you produce those sounds, which you can, of course, learn from the past. You know, like you, you see a, a Beethoven adagio written with a bunch of 32nd and 64th notes, and you understand that that slow music is tense. It's not supposed to be spacious. It's not supposed to be relaxed. There is a muscular tension that needs to go with that performance, and the composer is making sure that all that black ink there in the page is, you know, sort of uh, visually representing that struggle and you should respond to it. You've talked a lot about, in various stages of your life, things clicking and what clicks. You've characterized almost all of these clicks as realizing that you don't know anything. Yes. Um, so did any of those come after your DMA program? Oh, I mean, they keep on, keep on coming. You know, I, I, the beauty of life for me really is on realizing how much I don't know uh, and how much is there to be learned and how much is there to be somehow, I don't know, spelled out and, and internalized and, and knowing that even when I get those new pieces of information that they will just lead to other things that I, that I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the beauty, the beauty to me is not in the finished product. It's always on the, on the things to come. If you look at the past, you know, if you look at, you know, the great composers of, you know, all times, what we know of Beethoven, what we know of Mozart, what we know of those people is an edited version of their catalogs. You know, a lot of really bad music was written by a lot of great people. And time has taken care of those things and they become sort of oddities that kind of fall, you know, off of the general 
likes. So what we get when we, we think of those, those big names are the things that did work. So it's kind of funny then for contemporary composers to think of failing, to think of creating something that doesn't quite work as something positive because history has you know, transformed the, 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 the past view of what being a composer into something that doesn't exist at all, you know, into this super machines, you know, creative machines that just create beauty, that just works from get-go. And it's so not true. And I allow myself a lot of room for failure, and I think that failure is a great thing. And failure sometimes teaches you much, much more than something that just works, you know, from the beginning. In Marcos's piece Chambers, which we'll listen to a good chunk of in a minute, he builds a series of spaces for the string quartet to inhabit. I wanted each movement to feel like a, a very physical experience in which you could almost imagine this sort of place where it was, you know, happening. Here's Doyle Armbrost, violist from the Spectral Quartet, who commissioned and premiered Chambers. Marcus's music is very exacting. It asks for a lot of virtuosity. It sort of demands to be perfectly in tune and, and have perfect ensemble. And yet at the same time, there's a real organic quality to it that is something that I sense as a performer as I'm playing, but I think also comes across in the recorded material. It's not pots and pans music. It's not, let me throw every extended technique I can find at this piece and see what sticks. It's a, it's a very economical palette of timbres and of pitches. And as such, I feel like the music has a real coherence that I think is, is singular to him. focuses in on a specific set of timbres, and so you really get a chance to explore kind of that entire sound world within one piece. It doesn't sort of fly by, and if you missed it, you missed it. But it's something that really sets an immediate mood, and I think it does so in a way that it invites you in, really. It sort of demands to be heard, but in the same way, it really just it invites you in to, to have your own experience with it and sort of sit in the midst of all these incredible textures that he's creating. you really do get the feeling of walking through doorways from one physical space to the next. The piece also uses a lot of Marco's signatures, ways of structuring music that harken all the way back to the piano pieces he was writing as a little kid. Focusing on the sound itself, repeating things to recontextualize them, imitations that morph into something else, and staying where you are for a while until things sink in.
constant empiricism, you know, that you, you keep trying things and you fall flat in your face and then the next time you fall a little bit nicer, you know, uh, you have less bruises until you don't fall anymore. And then you start jumping. And I, I, I like the process. For a lot of folks, it is a little bit of, a, of an eagle trip that you don't allow anything to flow from your pores, that it's not a masterpiece. Everything has to be absolutely perfect. And when I see people behaving like that, I can't help but to think that they're wrong because they're not getting those bruises in their knees that will actually lead them to the great ideas. And to get those bruises, you can't either overthink or let your ego get on the way. You have to sort of jump off that building. I spoke with Marcos after this interview, a few weeks ago when he was in the process of moving to New York. When I asked him what made him leave Chicago... He replied that he needed to take new risks. I love this. This thing about embracing failure, it's not him saying it's okay to suck. He's saying it's okay to try. It's okay to have outright failures in order to birth something way better. What he's talking about is embracing process and having an ego that will allow for it. How do you feel about the idea of influence in composition. I guess what I mean by that question is oftentimes people are either very fiercely for or fiercely against showing one's compositional influences in one's music. That's egotistical and stupid. I mean, I, you know, again, I don't, I don't write music to, to enter history. Um, I don't write music to have this sort of... Uh, this is me and this is my sound, you know. I write music because I need to. I write music because it's very part of who I am and I write music because it is satisfying to me artistically and personally and I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. And what comes of it um, at this point is all bonuses. It's all this endless cherries on top of this magical Sunday. Are you happy with 
work from the past or do you revise a lot or do you sort of leave things where they are? I don't tend to revise and no, I'm not happy. I'm never happy with what I've done. Um, I, I listen to it, I learn from it, but again, I think that my biggest fuel is my feeling of not being satisfied with what I have accomplished and what I have, what I have learned. I, I, I see things as, you know, lesser or bigger failures, but they're always pointing towards something with the caveat that I look at the word failure as something positive. Marcos's most striking talent exists in his imagining ways of creating and combining timbres that are ever so slightly skewed from the mundane, but that work. Without trying things out, he can come up with ways of playing two seemingly unrelated instruments that almost magically meld together. He has an almost encyclopedic mind's ear of potential timbres. This, I think, is where he is truly exceptional, truly stands apart from the pack. It's not that one should know that things work in order to write it down, but I do believe that you should have a good idea that there is a very high probability that it will work, but you take a leap of faith. You know, and sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. And that's the whole thing about compositional ego. I try as much as I possibly can to never think of this has to be successful. I want things to feel adventurous to me. I hope that I never stop taking risks in my life. The moment that I feel that things are too safe, too grounded, if I know that that building is going to stand beautifully from get-go, why build it? from Millbrook, New York. Links to all the music featured on today's show, along with Marcus Balter's website, are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota and Alexander Overington, with help from Curtis McDonald. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to Hannes Brown. A very special thanks to Doyle Armbrust, Augusta Reed Thomas, Claire Chase, Ryan Muncy, New Amsterdam Records, and Parlor Tapes. Thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Also, special thanks to our Kickstarter supporters, including Alana and Jonathan Stone, Anthony Kramer, Alan, Vina Orton, and Justice Schlichting. You're listening to New York's Q2 Music, part of Classical 105.9 WQXR. Q2 Music is a listener-supported online station devoted to music of living composers. Q2 is home for immersive festivals, live webcasts, and on-demand concerts from today's leading music performers. Find us at Q2 on Facebook, Q2 Music on Twitter, and online at q2music.org. 